Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, Nord VPN, of course. You see, it's Nord Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to The Take. I would say Kermode Mayo's Take, except it's clearly not. It's Rihanna Dillon and Anna Bogotskaya. Hello. Hi. Hi. We're the super subs, right? That's what we get we to call are ourselves. The most super subs. We are super, I mean, super subs. I always love doing the show, but can I just say, yeah, I'm so excited for today. <laughs> I am giddy. I am ecstatic. I am literally just jumping in my chair. I know the, the engineers will hate that sound, but it's worth it. <laughs> The squeals we let out when we saw each other. It's its so exciting to do this because we both have um, done the show before. We've both done yes. the take before, but never with each other. No. And it feels like the stars have finally aligned. I know. Like for the listeners and for people watching this on YouTube. We've never is, met before. No, <laughs> no This joking. is the first time and it's instant <laughs> love. It's like love at first podcast. The we, joy. Oh, I'm so excited show. about this. So Anna, I'm trying to think, when was the first time that we met oh my god i don't remember i don't remember but since it whatever it was we have developed a lovely relationship you're at my wedding i know Um, beautiful wedding we've podcasted together a few times you podcast more with my husband actually i do me and your husband have a little podcast (laughs) going on right now i think there's like four podcasts out that we're doing together you've you've spoken to mike so many more times this week than I have. In fact, you've spent much more time with him <laughs> than I have, which is fine. I mean, go for it. It's I'm out. infiltrating your marriage via podcast with the both of you. I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, so tell us, you have got so much. You are one of the busiest women I know. Tell me what is going on in your life. I I think this is a stigma that's attached to me because most of the time I'm like, I'm not doing enough. That's so not true. Every time you have about eight different projects going on. Not enough. I want 10. Yeah. Well, that's because you're psychotic. Yeah, that is also true. (laughs) Uh, No, it's been, I mean, sometimes, do you ever get this, Rihanna? Because, you know, we do a similar job. We do a lot. We're both film critics. We Mm -hmm. do a lot of talking and broadcasting. We both write, you know, we both like go to a lot of things, go to a lot of the screenings, the events, you know, the benefits of living in or near London. Mm -hmm. And do you ever get those feelings? Like when you're walking down the street and you're like, I can't believe I get to do this for my job. Yes, I do. You've been doing this for such a long time as well. I've been doing it for just over a decade, I suppose. Mm. Um, 12 years or so. And I do still get that really excited. I think it's when, when I do projects that feel new like this feels new mm-hmm. working with you on this um is a is one of one of those things that i'm just so excited that i get to sit opposite a friend and talk about movies 
Yeah. I feel incredibly lucky. It's a great job. Absolutely. And you, so whenever I see you, you're always, like I said, you've always got something new on the go. You've just finished writing a book. It's out. It's not quite out yet. Is it not? No. You very kindly read it really early on and gave me a blurb, which I'm really deeply thankful for. And it's out in May in the States Mm -hmm. and it's out on the 9th of June in the UK. It's called Unlikable Female Characters that Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate. And honestly, it's because... It's weird that I I announced the, that the book existed and it was going to be out the last time I did the show. Yeah. And then since that happened, there's been actual people, not just friends, broadcasters, other authors <laughs> who have read it to give me blurbs or, you know, their feedback on mm-hmm. it. Actual people who do not know me have read it. Oh, my goodness. And it is paralyzing. I cannot tell. I do, like I I love it was always my dream to write a book. Yeah. And I'm working on well, I'm actually working on three others at the moment <laughs> in different stages. Yeah, of. Anna, you don't you don't do enough. <laughs> yeah, you're right. God, what a lazy person you are. I know it's disgusting. I really <sighs> should be waking up earlier to get more in. Uh 6 a.m. is not early oh, enough. Stop it. But the it's this constant dynamic of oh I want to be seen I want my work to be out Mm. there I want to be a part of the conversation and then when you get to be a part of the conversation which is one of the greatest privileges of this job Mm -hmm. you're like oh no don't look at me don't read my stuff I don't want to be seen I don't want to be known don't don't engage with it don't tell me what you think I know I can do better You absolutely can't. You are top of your game. Um, We have got so much to get through on today's podcast. So tell us what's coming up on the show. Well, it feels like today's week has been specifically designed for my very different cinematic tastes (laughs) because we have a vampire comedy starring Nicolas Cage called Renfield. Yeah. We've got the new Mia Hansen-Luver film, One Fine Morning, and a new Netflix erotic thriller series, Obsession. It ticks all of your boxes. I know. It's like, this is all my jam. Plus, our very special guest this week is Nicholas Holt, who plays Renfield in Renfield. And I just always think, how cool must it be to be opposite, playing opposite someone like Nicholas Cage? So I asked him quite a lot about that. Oh, I can't wait to hear your interview. There's going to be a lot more stuff in Take Two for subscribers slash The Vanguard. Extra content includes bonus reviews of Raging Bull. It's the 4K restoration. And I again, because this is a film that we don't really get to review very often, I'm really fascinated to hear what you have to say about Raging Bull. Same, because it was the first time you watched the film, wasn't it? Yes. I'm excited. We also have Cairo Conspiracy. We have the feature Pretentious, moi. And Anna, this is going to be your first ever stab <laughs> <Yes>. at this. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to tell you I'm very pretentious. I know. Have you not? <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I'm very unapologetic about my pretension. <laughs> uh, we've got Take It or Leave It, You Decide. Our word of mouth on a podcast feature this week is Pachinko. I'm so excited to review that. I, I had not seen this show. No, I'm really... Wa- it's wonderful. I'm really keen to hear what you have to say about it. And then we have One Frame Back, which is, of course, all about vampire comedy films. Shrink the Box is also ad-free on Tuesdays alongside all our other extra content on the Take channel. And you can support us via Apple Podcasts or head to extratakes.com for non-fruit-related devices. So our first email of The Take today is from Andy in Birmingham. Just a quick thought on the way that we pronounce words, more specifically the word pronounce itself and its various forms. On a recent podcast, you, not us, were discussing Simon's favourite German word and Mark told Simon his therapist has said he was pronouncing it wrong. Simon corrected Mark's 
pronunciation of the word pronouncing, suggesting it was pronouncing instead, even though this is at odds with its spelling. It's probably a regional thing, but as a northerner, I use nounce in all forms of the word pronounce, pronouncing and pronunciation, even though the spelling of this suggests I'm wrong. Is this a north versus south thing or is there more to it? Also, in reference to Americans pronouncing words differently, aluminum, Caribbean, etc. It's always been a goal of mine for an American to tell me something is patronising and for me to reply, I think you'll find that it's pronounced patronising. Thanks for the show and the S-tier production. Andy in Birmingham. A lot to unpack there. And I'm so <laughs> delighted that we've started the show talking about pronunciations oh, because God. pronunciation is how I pronounce pronunciation. <laughs> how do you pronounce pronunciation? I pronounce pronunciation, pronunciation. So wait, but you just said it two different ways. You said Did pronunciation I? and then you said pronunciation. Do you know what? This is why I'm, I was dreading this. I was <laughs> dreading this email because you know me. You know, like, I'm from multiple places. Yeah, which is where I remember having a drunken conversation with you on our sofa <laughs> once. And I think I was like, Anna, I just need to ask. Everybody needs to ask. I needed to, I, I had a hospital appointment just yesterday and the nurse was like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Spain. And mm-hmm. she's like, no way, so am I. She oh. was from the Basque country. Uh-huh. So we switched to, t- to chatting in Spanish. We had a lovely conversation and... You know, she was like, I would never tell. And she spent about five minutes telling me the different nuances of my accent. I'm like, oh my goodness. Madam, I have never even thought that deeply <laughs> about it, but fine. How do you pronounce the word pronunciation in Spanish? Pronunciar is the verb. Pronunciar. Pronunciación. Oh my goodness. Is the noun pronunciation. Uh huh. And would you, pro- are there different ways of pronouncing that in the north and south of Spain? Probably, yes. <laughs> But this is the thing about me, because I learned several languages at the same time when I was a child, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them, a lot of my learning came from movies, Mm -hmm. it meant that I genuinely think this is the reason why I sound vaguely American or vaguely Canadian, Mm -hmm. depending very much on who I'm speaking to. So as a child, as a child, as an immigrant child, I learned to really mimic people's pronunciations, people's mannerisms in speaking the way that certain words are more usual and more common in different parts of different countries. Mm -hmm. So I'm using words here, having lived in London for almost 10 years now, that I have never used in English (laughs) my entire life learning the language. Right. So I really absorb how people speak. Mm -hmm. That said, I am I do not have an ear. I don't have an ear for music and I do not have an ear for nuances and pronunciations. <laughs> so it is so deeply instinctual for me the way I've always learned languages that sometimes when I read emails like this, I'm fascinated because I have not noticed things because they just click into place in my head in a really organic way. Yeah. I understand that there's some people who, people learn in different ways. Mm -hmm. This is a fact. And people learn languages in very different ways. I always learned languages by listening. It really came in through my ear. And then I sort of mimicked and learned the language that way. So even though I don't make mistakes or typos um, when I'm writing, well, I do make some typos, but I will blame that on the Google Doc. (laughs) But... That comes from essentially mimicry. And that's the way that I learned Spanish is the way that I learned English, the way that I learned French. So the more I've immersed myself in the language, the more it stuck to me and it shifts. You know, the way I spoke English was very different when I lived in Madrid than Mm -hmm. when I moved to London. And then, you know, essentially that became my central language of my working and personal life. 
I love it. It's so complex, but an absolutely kind of fascinating delve into how people learn languages. I, I agree. I find it really interesting. I was talking to this nurse yesterday. I was like, she'd been in the UK for 31 years. Mm. And she said she was, you know, she learned, uh, she, no, sorry, let me rephrase that. And she said that she had kind of forgotten hearing Spanish in a way because it's not, well, it's not that common. And she was listening to a lot of podcasts at night, like Spanish language podcasts, just to get, get the language in her, her ear. ear. Oh, oh, I love that. So let's go to our first review. This is One Fine Morning. So we had a really lovely interview with uh, Mia Hansen-Luver that Simon did last week, um, which really opened my eyes to all of the sort of nuanced moments of the film. So let's hear a clip in French of One Fine Morning and then we'll get to hear what you think about the movie. Sandra Kinsler. Oui. Vous êtes la fille de Georg Kinsler. Oui, c'est moi. Il m'avait dit que vous étiez traductrice, j'étais une de ses élèves. Ah, d'accord. Ouais, ça fait un prof génial, ça m'arrive encore de relire ses cours. Bah, je dirais, ça lui fera plaisir. Est-ce que vous voulez bien me donner son mail J'aimerais bien lui écrire. Euh, oui, euh, je vais vous donner le mien. Parce qu'il a des difficultés pour lire. Euh, il vaut mieux que vous m'écriviez et je lui, je lui lirai. Il va bien Il a des problèmes de santé. Ah bon J'espère que c'est pas trop grave. C'est vrai. Pardon. Au revoir. So that was our central character, Sandra, getting quite emotional about having to relay the fact that her father is really quite ill. Um, what did you think of this movie, Anna? So I saw this movie for the first time in Cannes at its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival last year, and I gave it a, a five-star review then. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, spoiler, we're going to do that again now. <laughs> because I revisited the film um, to re-familiarize myself with it. And there is something so unique about Mia Hansen-Luva's filmmaking mm -hmm. where it is usually quite simple narratives, really simple stories about big emotions, uh, but they never feel slight and they never feel small. You know, because in the case of Sandra in One Fine Morning, she's a translator, she's played by Leah Seydoux, sporting, just as an aside, a very, very beautiful Jean Seberg-esque uh, pixie cut. <laughs> And she's in the middle of two really intense emotional journeys. On the one hand, her father, who is an academic, who has dedicated his entire life to learning, to words, to books, is slowly dying through a de degenerative disease. So she has to be his carer, but also really wrestle with the idea of his upcoming death uh, and the slow loss of his faculties. And, you know, the, the clip that we just played, it's, her also having to deal with the logistics of, for instance, dismantling his vast library of, you know, sharing that with his former students, with people who knew him, people who don't know him that well, uh, and the devastation of essentially taking apart someone's life's work and life's interest into just mere books and objects. And on the other hand, the big thing that's happening with Sandra is that she starts an affair she uh, she is a single mother to uh, to a small child, and she runs into this friend Clement, who's played by Melville Poupon, who is an amazing. I'm not sure if this is a made up uh, movie job. Is an astrochemist mm -hmm. or cosmochemist. So he does something to do with space. It sounds hot, and it involves a lot of travel. <laughs> and a chemist. 
Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and they start rekindling their friendship. There's obviously incredible chemistry between them. And that develops into an affair. But Clement has a, a partner who he's been with, with for 10 years. Mm-hmm. He's got a child. So eventually, Sandra becomes the mistress. But their romance is filmed and plays out like a romance. But it yeah. is entirely done from her point of view, from the point of view of a mistress who does not fit into the bill of any mistresses that we've seen kind of so far, mm-hmm. as you would expect from uh, Mia hansen Luva's film. She doesn't really do anything in the way that it's been done before. Yes. She's very concerned with the interior life of her characters, especially with the interior life of women. And it is really a beautiful film that is about care because Sandra is sort of She's a carer. She's a person who is caring for her child, caring for her father, caring for everyone around her and has essentially forgotten about herself and put herself on ice. And this affair, ill-advised as it is, the film doesn't really pass any moral judgments. It's not interested in that. It's interested in her awakening herself to herself. On the one hand, it's this physical reawakening through the sexual relationship she has with Clement. And then it's the emotional one of her falling in love and demanding that it is a real relationship, not this, I get you for two hours while your wife is away doing something. And you know, this infatuation that she has makes sense because she doesn't need to care for Clement. Mm. She's not performing that role for him. So her time, their fleeting time together becomes the only moment where she is getting into herself. So it's, you know, for Leia Seydoux, who's a wonderful performer and sometimes does, in the English language at least, roles that are a little bit more to do with how she looks mm-hmm. and are a bit more the of the arm candy bone girl variety, right? Here she is a woman who is torn between all these different roles. You know, she's a daughter, she's a carer, she's a mother, she's a lover. And which one or which intersection is the one where she exists? It's it's wonderful and it's just like a beautiful film to watch as well. It feels like a bomb. You know, it's shot in a beautiful sunny Paris. Mm-hmm. Everything is effortlessly gorgeous. And you and, know, it's, and it's realistic. It feels like yeah. a realistic interpretation still of, yeah. of Paris, but also of, as you say, of, of caring. Because, you know, the, the depictions of parents kind of growing old and that mm. role reversal of having to care for your parents on such a level where she's, she's kind of embarrassed to take her father to the toilet toilet but you cannot go herself but it's that very sort of quite I feel quite British but clearly quite French thing of like almost repression Mm -hmm. um, where a nurse sort of like scolds her for not being able to take her father to the toilet because of embarrassment and she sort of says you know you should be grateful for every kind of moment that you have with them but I can imagine that would be incredibly hard for somebody who has gone through that in their real lives with Mm -hmm. their own parents to watch but also possibly and hopefully quite cathartic. Yes. And also, interestingly, I didn't actually know this, uh, but it's loosely inspired, as many of her films are, by Mia Hansen-Luve's own experience yeah. with her alien father. And, you know, the the seed of the story, I'm not calling this autobiographical in any way. And I think all her films are personal, not necessarily autobiographical. And there's a difference. But she, at the time where she was caring in, for her alien father, she was also falling in love with a new partner. Mm. So the the weird dissonance between an extremely bullying, joyous experience that is falling in love 
happening at the same time as something, like you said, really jarring, really deeply sad and difficult to grapple with, which is the role reversal of care mm. for a person, a parent who you, you've you loved and who's taken care of you for your entire life now kind of being, um, you know, reduced to someone who can't take care of themselves. Mm. It's really devastating. It is. Yeah. It's also a very sexy film as well, we should say. Yes. I mean, God, the... <laughs> The kissing, the snogging in this film <laughs> is some of the best snogging that I've seen on screen in a very long time. Absolutely. Also, as an aside, I would love someone to email in about the word snog because it's not something I heard ever until I moved to London. <laughs> oh, really? But that first kiss oh, my between goodness. Sandra and Clement. Oh, my Lord. I was kind of clutching the sofa. I was like, this this is, but this is what sex should look like on screen. It's chemistry. It is pure and utter chemistry. And we'll get into what happens when there is no chemistry, perhaps, later on. Mm. Um, we have a, an email from Lucy who has said, I'm sure I was not the only listener holding my breath during the powerful conversation Simon had with me, Hanson Louver, on the subject, later explored between you both, of care homes and the physical impact they can have on their residents. Mia's description of her father being hunched over was exquisitely, if painfully, observed. While truthfully, I'm looking forward to seeing One Fine Morning when it's released next week, I suspect kind souls will be staring at me on the tube as I travel home afterwards and plying me with tissues. Note to self, take tissues. So I thought you'd like to know about some uplifting research which has long fascinated me as a psychotherapist. This research was conducted by a well-known global beauty brand who took their beauticians into care homes in France, offering free makeup and hair sessions to the residents. What the research showed was that after such interactions, care home residents suffered fewer falls and broken bones. Whether it was the well-being impact of having someone engage tenderly one-on-one -on -one with residents or the mood uplift that comes from feeling better about ourselves, through beautification, the research shows quite simply that the care home residents stood more upright, walked with more stability and greeted each day with greater confidence and that this resulted in fewer falls. I'm now off to stock up on tissues. Very best wishes, Lucy. Lucy, thank you so much. What a, a wonderful email. Really lovely email and also just a really hopeful one, I think. There is hope in this film. It is not all doom and gloom, absolutely not. It is very uplifting and joyful in parts, um, if not just seeing the love that Sandra has for her father. Mm. Um, but how lovely to have an optimistic take on this as well. I agree. Still to come. We've got reviews of Renfield, the vampire comedy starring Nicholas Holt and Nick Cage, and Netflix's new erotic thriller series, Obsession. We'll be back before you can say feeding time. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed 
delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Mubi. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a Mubi account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly, Simon. This month, Mubi are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival, which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical, with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful, and Tokyo Gar, which is the film by uh, German director Wim Wenders, who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Voila Vada, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Mayo. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kermode. Time for the box office. So at number 12 in the UK box office, it's not charted in the US, it's Rylane. Just amazing rom-com. Beautiful. Beautiful. Loved it on screen. Lived yeah. in Peckham myself. So you appreciated did. so many aspects of this. I have an email saying, Dear Dom and Yaz, MTL and FTE, I just wanted to thank Mark for recommending Rylane. Although I'd seen the trailers and liked the look of the film, I needed a nudge to take the next step and book tickets. Normally, I hate rom-coms. <laughs> but it was amazing to see black joy, black love and a different side of the black experience represented on screen. Black nerdiness, black quirkiness mm-hmm. and the black middle class. We mm-hmm. out here. Very often black films focus on the many injustices that people from the African diaspora have been forced to endure. While we have many wonderful and heartbreaking films, it was such a relief to see something so light and warm and not have to go into a film afraid of being traumatised. It also made me question why so many films with black protagonists focus on those at the margins of society, whereas films with white characters are often from the middle and upper classes. I also wanted to commend the soundtrack and the beautiful way the city is shot. Mm. I moved to London 15 years ago and love being reminded of how fortunate I am to live here. 
It felt important to use my money to help send the message that this is the kind of film we need more of. Down with the Nazis and up with waving to people on boats, Dr. Monique Davis. It's a wonderful email. Couldn't agree more. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely agree with you. I kept sort of waiting for a policeman to walk down Rye Lane and it just didn't happen. And uh, that was genuinely a thrill. So UK number 10, US number 16, it's Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. You know what? Good for Antonio Banderas. Good for cats everywhere. Good for cat lovers everywhere. (laughs) Which is you. As a cat owner myself. (laughs) I mean, I do think my cat Vladimir deserves the Puss in Boots treatment. He deserves a biopic. He's left a, a, you know, lived a really wonderful, extraordinary life. You've not written a kid's book yet, have you, Anna? Maybe that's the next project. Yes, maybe it will be about my cat. About my cat moving from... Madrid to Barcelona to London. <laughs> uh, UK number nine, US number seven, it's Creed 3. I really enjoyed Creed 3. It was brilliant. It was. And honestly, I understand that Jonathan Majors's character is the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's such a compelling performer. I ended up rooting for him. But it's the same thing that Michael B. Jordan did for me in Black Panther. Mm, he yes, sort of flipped, exactly. flipped it on me. Yeah. And by the end of it, you're just in tears. For, for both of them. He's a great villain. And also I really loved the relationship between Creed and his daughter. Yes, which I'm waiting for the spin-off with her yes. in the lead role. Yes. Because I also a deaf black female exactly. boxer. That kind of film is not going to get made unless they, they do it. Yeah. Unless it's these, part of the Creed franchise. Exactly. I can see this Creed in the future. A UK number eight, US number five, it's Scream 6. You know I loved it because... Your husband and I made a whole podcast about <laughs> the Scream movies Actually, called Hello Sydney. It's a great, it's a great podcast, and also the film is. I really enjoy the film. Mark really says it was a snore fest. Do you know what? I disagree. I was very tense throughout the whole experience. And I actually enjoyed it more than Scream 5, which mm. I liked, but this one. I genuinely was gripped. And I think they did a few things that was very new for the Scream franchise. Mm. You know, it's it's a interesting franchise in and of itself because it needs to constantly up the ante. Yes. And this one, you know, they moved to New York. It's the, con- the continuing characters from Scream 5. Mm. And I think, you know, um, spoilers are a big thing for Scream fans, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But I enjoyed it, although the one thing I will say, and it's a choice and they stuck with it, doesn't have as much humor. Yes, I agree, because one of the best things about Scream is They're how funny. funny. Yeah. Although big up Hayden Panettiere, always. Oh, yeah. Always happy to see her. UK number seven, US number eight. It's Shazam, Fury of the Gods. I sort of feel like less said about this, the better. You know what? It should be subtitles, Fury of the Film Critics, because God, <laughs> damn, this film was bad. I felt, I felt furious at Lucy Liu's and Helen Mirren's agents <laughs> for putting them in this. Uh, UK number six, US number 25. It's Mummy. And neither of us have anything to say on this because neither of us have seen it. Good for the mummies. Uh, UK number five, and it's not charted in the US, it's The Pope's Exorcist. <laughs> Anna, we've not heard about this on the podcast yet. Thought so. I had a wonderful time in the cinema watching this. Oh my goodness, really? It is Russell Crowe in his hammy era where he is going full tilt, being extremely everything in every single scene. It's not scary. It really isn't. It's a Is it scene. supposed to be? 
I think it is, but it's not. I think it really works as a hammy sort of B movie almost mm. with relatively bad special effects. <laughs> There's a whole pope conspiracy. There's the the chief pope exorcist. You know, it's vaguely inspired by the real life cases of Father Gabriel Amorf, who's you know very um, very notable for horror fans because he's part of the inspiration for the Exorcist yeah. film, and William Friedkin um, has done another film about him and there's been numerous films kind of made about him and his legacy. Mark has also written one, I he think. Has, or yeah. co-written a film. Um, and but this is this is just silly. I will tell you what though, I cackled many times. Not especially when there are multiple shots of Russell Crowe on a teeny tiny moped rushing through Spain to go attend an exorcism. Oh my goodness. And also when he is such a coffee snob, where he there's a there's a wonderful what? scene that I related to a lot. You know, he plays an Italian, an Italian priest, oh and he's gosh. somebody offers him a like? latte. It's it's we'll talk about Super Mario later. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, got no, it. But, you know, he someone offers him a coffee and he's like, oh, a cafe latte this time of the day? Are you possessed? <laughs> Which I'm stealing. That's a great line. Yeah, because I'm a coffee snob. A UK number four, US number three, it's air. So we have an email from David Thompson. Dear The Shoe and the person standing in The Shoe, LTL and the production team Fanboy, I have all their albums. Having just returned from an opening night screening of Ben Affleck's Air in the gloriously restored Odeon in Bangor, Northern Ireland, I thought I would offer up my thoughts. In short, I thoroughly enjoyed it. In many ways, a companion piece in style and feel to Argo. My wife and I laughed, nodded along and squirmed at all the right moments. Matt Damon, Jason Bateman and Ben Affleck can do this sort of thing in their sleep, while Viola Davis continues to be utterly peerless in almost every role she embodies. Correct. As a director, Ben Affleck has mastered the needle drop, and while at times his scene-stealing CEO is one 80s sun visor away from going full fame, it's impossible not to root for the whole team. The six-laugh test and the under-two-hour test were both passed, and the film also includes a Martin Luther King fact that leaves one open-mouthed. As perhaps the most famous sports personality of all time, I'm pretty sure Mark won't have heard of Michael Jordan before. However, I'm delighted to say, in my opinion, the film can be enjoyed by both those in and out of the know. Tinkety Tonk, up with Jason, BHFs and packed out cinemas, David Thompson. So Michael Jordan is not actually in the film. No, which is what one of the things that makes Air interesting. It's a film about Michael Jordan. Actually, it's a film about a very influential licensing deal uh-huh. that Michael Jordan strikes with Nike. Because on paper, that does not sound appealing. Well, there is something to be discussed, and we don't have time for this right now, but we probably will in the pub, about the recent... <laughs> Blood of films around uh, IP and most centrally about the licensing deals. Tetris being another one. Tetris is another one. Blackberry, which is coming out a little bit later this year, is also another um, another kind of biopic of a product that is coming out, mm-hmm. which is a weird format. And Air is essentially the biopic of a sneaker, the Air Jordans. Mm-hmm. And there's multiple different readings about, you know, the impact that it had on Michael Jordan's wealth, the creation of wealth, um, and also the impact that it had on further deals for other athletes. But as a film, as a whole, I love Ben Affleck Mm -hmm. as a movie star. As a celebrity and as a film director, I think he is a wonderful director. I don't think this is necessarily a great film, but it is thoroughly enjoyable. I did laugh. And one person who I think needs to be shouted out that email did not mention is Chris Messina, who plays Michael Jordan's agent and has one of the all time biggest laughs in this film where he goes 
full hog goes way up to 12 <laughs> as angry belligerent agent. And he's so good at it. And I think he's, you know, I think he's one of the top Chris's out there. And everybody forgets about Messina. Who Messina? He's fantastic, always. I think I would get PTSD from seeing a really terrifying agent, though, because we've all dealt with them and it's horrifying. <laughs> um, at UK number three, US number two, is John Wick, chapter four. At the UK number two, a US number four, it's Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. And then at UK number one and US number one, it's Super Mario Bros. So we have so we have an email from Andrew and Belfast. Dear Mario and Luigi. My wife and I took our kids to see Super Mario Bros. Child one, ten year old, and child two, six year old. With the exception of Child 2, who could barely contain his excitement from the first time he saw the trailer, expectations were fairly low. Child 1 had heard my wife and I discussing the review of the movie by Robbie Collin, occasionally of this parish, and on the way in she said apparently this movie is awful. The kids loved it. Child 2 was mesmerised the whole way through the movie. Child 1, disagreeing with Robbie, announced that it was brilliant at the end. They are clearly the target and it really delivered for them. My wife thought, my wife thought it was fairly heartless and I spent large parts of the movie wishing I had a controller to play it like a game and wondered how good the game would be hooked up to an IMAX screen. Keep up the good work, Andrew in Belfast. I do feel like... It is, you do want to delve into this film as a player, 100%. It is absolutely for kids. It, there is, it's just, there's no shame in that. No, there isn't. No, Children I, are allowed to have a platform. They're allowed to have films that are made specifically for absolutely. them. Absolutely. The history of screen, um, the history of video game to screen adaptations is mostly littered with failures rather than successes. Although obviously we've had the massive roaring acclaim The Last of Us really recently. Mm. I'll admit this is one of the few, one of the only films on this list that I haven't seen. I'm very happy for the kiddies to see it. <laughs> Go forth, enjoy it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit on my high critical horse yeah. and say that it should not exist. Of course, it exists. Go enjoy it. I'm glad you did. I not went, everything needs to yeah. satisfy everyone. I went with a pint of wine, and I absolutely. <laughs> that was. That's not a audible typo it was a pint of wine and uh, I had a thoroughly brilliant time I feel like Jack Black singing peaches 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 just took and me back to School of Rock I just you know what a performance as Bowser we we in with these kind of films like with Dungeons and Dragons for instance which is number two I have never played d and I fully I know the impact that it has had on pop culture I had a great time there is an owl bear. There's one of the other two top Chris's, Chris Pine. And you know what? I think if it satisfies both fans of the game and regular going audiences, that's a win. I agree. 100%. That's the box office. And now it's time for our very special interview. Today's guest is someone you might remember as the genius child actor from About a Boy, starring alongside Hugh Grant. He then went on to be Tony in the much-loved TV series Skins. And more recently, I tell you what, Skins made me really feel like I was doing teenage years wrong. Yeah, same. <laughs> more recently, he starred in the movie The Menu with Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy, who is also in Super Mario Brothers. It is, of course, Nicholas Holt. So you'll hear my interview with him right after this clip of Renfield. Renfield, this is Codependency 101. A narcissist will take full advantage of a codependent's low self-esteem, but you're the one with the real power. And all you got to do is take it back. How do I do that? Focus on your needs. I mean, I just haven't thought about any of my needs and years. But if you were to stop focusing on his needs, what would happen? If I don't... Yeah, what would what? happen? 
Stop focusing on his knees. What would happen? He won't grow to full power. Exactly. He won't grow to full power. What? That's so weird. Why would you phrase it like that? But yes, he's right. That was a clip from Renfield, and I'm delighted to be joined by its star, Nicholas Holt. Hello. Hey. How are you going? Yeah, good. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, good. Um, I wanted to ask you, how freeing is it to have a very secondary character like Renfield in Dracula come to the fore in this, compared to the character of Dracula himself, who we have seen so many iterations of? Uh, it's fun because you obviously have like the root of Renfield, the character from the novel and, and previous iterations of him on film. But then, you know, setting this movie 100 years on from there and making Renfield the kind of titular character, you get this you get this freedom, I guess, from, from my standpoint as an actor where I get to go, OK, I know where it's all come from and I can base some of some of my work in that. But also I'm free to just kind of bounce off the walls and, and do what I feel as well. And how much of a conversation was that about you bouncing off the walls or not? Or, you know, how far were you able to take it? Uh, you know what? It, I guess that was the exciting thing was the script that Ryan Ridley wrote and uh, was just really fun and very different and, and original. And I think that was what appealed to all of us when we came to this movie was this idea of being like, OK, so we've seen Dracula movies. We know his story. What can we discover within Renfield and what can we discover within that relationship? Mm. This idea of this kind of the most narcissistic, horrible boss um, and his servant, and how they've how their relationships developed over a hundred years, and 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 how how they kind of get out of that codependency. It's such a it's such a brilliant movie to watch with an audience. You know, like I was, yeah. we were kind of clutching at each other and elbowing each other at these really? oh, brilliant good, good, moments. Good. So fun, but how reluctant an action hero is. Renfield, because he really, he got, you know, he does throw himself into it. Does he enjoy being unleashed with those bugs that he finds power in? I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think if we'd gone back a hundred years, there was probably, there was probably a Renfield that enjoyed, okay, the, having these powers and like the that 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 feeling that Dracula gave him when he was sent off on these kind of missions to bring him food or whatever. But by the time you meet him in this story, he's he's run down by it. He's not he's not enjoying it. And then and the the. The violence is a means to an end, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, he's trying to find little loopholes where he's like, all right, well, I've got to take him food, but maybe if I take people that have been hurting this, these other people that are now my friends in this codependency group, maybe if I take him those people to eat, then it's kind of me doing a good deed in a, in a weird way. So he's, um, yeah, he's a reluctant action <laughs> hero, I suppose, or definitely doesn't view himself as that. There are some incredible stunts that you get to do. Yeah, and I'm assuming ones. some aren't you, but some definitely are. Yes. So which were the ones that you sort of were taking part in going, actually, this is really cool that I get to... Uh, there were some quite, some quite long fight sequences that were really fun. The stunt team on this were incredible in terms of how they, how they choreographed things to, that we could have long flowing sequences. Um, uh, the one that I was kind of... God, I didn't get to do is there's a sequence in this, it's called the apartment fight, or that's what we referred to it, mm -hmm. um, where myself and Aquafina's character, Rebecca, are trying to escape from this apartment and the kind of local police and mobster teams have all descended upon to try and stop us. And there's a shot at the end of it where Renfield rides the body of one of the goons down onto <laughs> a truck and then it explodes in a huge shower of blood. And I got to do like parts of that, uh -huh. but I didn't get to do the actual impact of mm -hmm. the blood squirting and flying. That was James, my stunt double, who did that. And I was kind of a little bit envious because yeah. I was like, oh, that looks like a fun one to do. 
There was, there, I mean, the fact that you get to, don't you use somebody's arms? Oh, as yeah, like a pair I rip of off some l- arms in that and use them uh, as, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but I, I would practice. I had like, uh, I'm going to call them batons. That's not the right <laughs> like martial Like a cheerleading baton? <laughs> I can't remember, but I had these like foam martial art practice batons okay. in the hotel that I would practice with. <laughs> And trying all these different configurations and moves because then they would give me these arm, these limbs that I would wield against people, yeah. I loved the limbs. Yeah, that was a fun moment. And using them as like a javelin to pierce other bad guys to walls. It's It's fun. It's mad. Across your career, you've... You've been able to do quite a, a lot of quite unusual things on screen. Yeah, so, was there anything you. that you you were um, you had to learn from scratch for this particular film? I guess there were a couple of stunt moves. There was one called a pasha roll that I'd never I'd never really done anything like that, which is kind of this jump where you end up jumping and twisting your legs horizontally, landing on one hand, and then rolling through, and and getting back onto your feet. It sounds it's, it's difficult to describe, but it was something that, like, when you see someone do it, you're like, yeah. it looks like a glitch. You're like, what just happened? <laughs> and then, so they, they, the, the stunt team taught me how to do that. And they taught me how to do a backflip, which I didn't have to learn for the film, but they just taught me. Can you still do a backflip? I'm not going to so. ask you to do it I now. I think but... so. Yeah, definitely not in here. Because yeah. <laughs> that's what actors always say, that they learn stuff and then they immediately forget it as soon as they leave set, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is very much, because there's just a quick turnover of, like, right, you need this information for this and this dialogue or whatever, it does leave very quickly. But that, that, that the backflip has, has so far stuck with me. <laughs> um, there is an incredible set where Dracula has a throne made out of blood bags. Yes, yeah. Uh, and it looks incredibly cool. Who needs an iron throne when you have We've this blood, blood bag, bag right? throne? Yeah. Um, can you tell us about the production design and what really helped you get into this vampiric world? Uh, Alec, the production designer, was in- incredible in terms of... Because it is modern but he wanted to bring elements of the classic dracula era mm. and and their tale into this but also it's not a time when <clears throat> they're living in a particularly opulent world renfield and dracula have kind of fallen upon hard times so they're in an abandoned hospital is their new home mm. and it's kind of a little bit grim for them um <clears throat> but then there's also the the counteract to that is is when Renfield kind of tries to break free and he he rents his own apartment and paints it all these beautiful pastel colours and yeah. puts up inspirational posters um, and things. So Alec was having a lot of fun with the production design and it was it was a great world to inhabit. That was a very sweet shift, actually, seeing what Renfield could have been or might have been from the beginning. Did yeah. you have any say in the in the pastels, in the jumpers, in the mantras? I, I really I really wanted to push <laughs> as 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 terrible as possible in terms of the costume evolution from him going to Lake. There, w- there was this whole string of jokes about Old Navy. <laughs> and then we didn't end up wearing Old Navy, so we couldn't do it. But there was like a whole string of jokes throughout the film where after Renfield went to Old Navy and changed his, his attire, that everyone was commenting on how nice he looked. Yeah. He was always uh, responding with, thanks, it's Old Navy, which didn't make it into the film. Um, but, yeah, we did the chinos and the pastel jumper mm-hmm. and sweater. It was all kind of... This idea of going to a shop and be, being sold things that don't really suit you but felt, like, warm and fuzzy. Do you think that is going to surprise people who are coming expecting, you know, a more traditional Dracula film, vampire film, and then they're, they're faced with these beautiful, colourful jumpers and Renfield? I think so. I think that's the fun we're having them with the movie. It's just, I, I mean, 
I think Nick Cage describes it as it feels like you're, sl- you're getting slapped around the face, <laughs> like in this film. And it's like you don't know where it's going to go next. You don't know if it's going to be a gory, horrific moment or if it's going to be something funny maybe or or if there's going to be, yeah, just taking I, uh, what people's ideas and beliefs might be and, and flipping them a little bit. Well, talking about Nick Cage, you know, seeing kind of having a front row seat to him doing his thing. Can you describe that for us? It was honestly pretty magic because, you know, I've worked with Nick before and, and, and but now having and now I'm an adult and I get to have watched a lot more of his movies and and kind of not studied him, but, you know, just become a real fan. Yeah. I then get to watch him, how he, where he draws inspiration from, the, the twists and turns he makes within films, how he can make Dracula, you know, someone who's terrifying in one moment to playing this kind of hurt kind of wounded gaslighting mm-hmm. animal in the second in the in the next moment and then lashing out again it's it was really fun to be in those moments with him and and also just the kind of tiny little yeah details that he put in that were like a lot of fun you talked um in another interview about nick cageisms yes like what what are nick cageisms to you <clears throat> well it's interesting cuz he based dracula somewhat in terms of where he was pitching the character in, as as his father in terms of how erudite and eloquent he was as a character and being the smartest man in the room and this sort of thing. Um, but then he also had this Anne Bancroft idea from The Graduate. There's peppers of that, where he's quite uh, predatory towards mm-hmm. Renfield as well at moments. But there's, I think the one that stands out when you ask at the moment is there's a line where he says, he says, let me tell you something, Renfield. Okay. It does like a little okay, and I don't know. I'm not going to do it fully, okay. But then he carries on, and it was and and seeing it, I remember just being like, my heart had a little flutter. I was like, oh, that feels just perfect. Feels perfect, Cage. Um, you are opposite so many people who I feel like would just crack you up in a <clears> second, like yeah. Aquafina, Ben Schwartz. So how do you sort of maintain that <laughs> sort of dignified Renfield? kind of bambi-eyed. Honestly, I mean, that's probably the, just them editing out me when I when I break and when I giggle because they're, I mean, yeah, both both of them are so funny, Aquafina and, and Ben, and so sharp and great at improvisational comedy yeah. and bringing new things to each moment that there's just times that they'll catch you off guard and they'll say something or do something and you just try not to, to break. Is that something you're used to, sort of being able to respond in the moment to somebody who is improvising? Not, I, you know what, I've, ne- I, I've never really worked with like improvisational comedy like legends like them mm-hmm. so it's kind of it was kind of new to me because I was like oh this is different because there is like a a, a free form and and uh and spontaneity and, and sharpness to them which yeah. if you're not expecting it, it catches you off guard yeah um going back to Nick Cage for a second in terms of his Dracula mm. when you're watching that what why do you think that it does work so well for this film for this audience for this time because we have had so many iterations but this one particular was such a pleasure to watch why do you think that was i think partly because nick's have he he's rooted it in so many um believable qualities as a character but he's also having so much fun with mm. it 
So it's 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 impossible not to kind of enjoy being around that character. I think when someone's having that much fun as a performer, you kind of you just want to be around them. So even when Dracula's being at his worst in this movie, he's still enjoyable to watch, and and you want to kind of see more and be around it more. I know that different um, actors sort of take inspiration in different ways from people that they work with. Some people might sit and watch and absorb. Some people ask lots of questions. Mm. What kind of actor are you if you're trying to sort of absorb from somebody that you're working with? Uh, you gain a lot from just watching and, and 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 seeing how they interact or seeing how they, for instance, take notes or like how how prepared they are. Like some people, you you'll come in and like, for instance, Nick. Five weeks before he started shooting, he came in and we were having a meeting in Chris McKay, the director's office, and he put the script down and was off book and and knew every scene pretty much at that moment. That's how prepared he was. I've worked with other people who, you know, in, in the morning you'll be on set and they'll be looking at the sides going, all right, I think I know it. And they'll be learning it right then and there. And then they, they don't, they don't kind of embed it as early on. So it's, it's, um, it's interesting because you can just see how different styles and approaches can work differently for mm. different people. And particularly for me, because I'm like not necessarily set in any way of Acting, I don't feel like I've got it figured out exactly mm-hmm. what my <laughs> approach or style is. So it's fun just to watch other people and what what they do and how they approach things. Because then I'm like, okay, well maybe I can try that and maybe that will work for me. And uh, finally, we're seeing you next in Nosferatu. Oh yeah, yeah, we're shooting it at the moment. Yeah. I'm really excited. Working with Robert Eggers, what kind of director is he? Because <laughs> wow, his films are wild. <laughs> his, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm like, as a fan, I'm just like a little bit in awe of him. Yeah. Like, I love his movies so much. And so that, it, that's been an incredible experience for me. I feel like I've been in the Robert Eggers School of Acting, um, which is a great one because I, I love the performances these people have given in his previous movies. So I'm like, all right, how can I learn? What can I do to become someone that fits into one of your worlds that you create? Um, so I feel like I'm learning a lot and, and his his detail, his precision, it's, it's, it's really challenging, but very fun and hopefully we'll make a good movie. I can't wait to see it. Nicholas Holt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So that was Nicholas Holt. What did you think? What did you think of the film? Oh, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. You didn't love Renfield. I did not love Renfield. Okay. And on paper, it's got a lot of things that I love. I love vampires in film. I love Nicolas Cage very dearly. You can read a 4,000-word essay about <laughs> Nicolas Cage that I wrote for BBC wow. Culture last year. That is over and above. Yeah, I love Dracula, the mythology. Uh-huh. I'll watch every single Dracula movie or TV show ever made. I happily will. And I like the spin of this on paper. You know, we meet Renfield, who is a side character who's Dracula's slave, essentially, who's familiar, uh, in a support group of victims of abusive relationships. And in the whole dynamic is that he's in a toxic relationship with his boss, mm-hmm. Dracula, played by Nicolas Cage. And now I would have given you any money in the world to see Nicolas Cage play Dracula. <laughs> but this is not a film that's going to let him do that. Uh-huh. I I am really here for his performances, but I have to say it really felt like a mix of, like a remix of his performance in 1989's Vampire Kiss mm-hmm. and a weird sort of impression of Donald Trump. <laughs> I did not see this, but now I need to go back and watch it with fresh eyes. So once I started clocking that that was the voice he was doing, I could not unsee it. And, you know, the the cageisms are great to watch. They're always fun, even if they're not precisely clicking. But fundamentally, this film fails for me as a comedy. It tries to do too much action because it's trying to 
you know, it's trying to earn its horror chops mm-hmm. by adding quite a lot of gore and action uh, into it. And it's just unnecessary because when you have performers like Nicolas Cage, like Nick Holt, who is essentially playing the straight man in mm-hmm. this, you know, when he's doing again a remix of his performance in Warm Bodies, which is it the is, zombie rom-com that he did. It is very similar. Yeah. And then you've got Ben Schwartz, who is amazing always. <laughs> the worst. Yes, Sorry, that's, that's a Parks and Rec reference, by the way. For people in the know, they will get it. <laughs> he is incredibly funny and dynamic as a sort of Nepo baby gangster <laughs> yes. called Teddy Lobo. And you've got Aquafina, who is hilarious, whatever she does. She's so good with physical comedy, so good with improvisation as well. And she's essentially playing kind of a, a variation of the, the straight lace cop. Yeah, she's but, very she's very reined in for Aquafina, yeah, right? Exactly. She only gets a few moments. I actually think it works really well for mm-hmm. her brand of humor. But then you get distracted with these 10 minute long violent set pieces. I'm like, I don't care. I'm not in Renfield for the horror Uh or the action. I'm here to see Nicolas Cage play Dracula. I'm here to see Ben Schwartz be a gangster. I'm Uh here to see Aquafina like lose her mind over some unresolved rage issues. (laughs) So I just think it does very little with a really fun premise. And it was... You know, I didn't hate it. I was just disappointed. I found so much humour in those action scenes. I thought the action was hilarious and so stupid and so overt and over the top. And I really was. I saw it with a with a friend and we were kind of elbowing each other and like really honking with laughter at how silly and grotesque it was. I mean, it's incredibly visceral. Blood is going everywhere. It, it is kind of like There's Deadpool. a lot of ripping off yes, limbs. ripping off limbs and bodies <laughs> exploding for no apparent reason. And, you know, it's not trying to be subtle in any way. Uh, I kind of enjoyed those moments where Nicholas Holt, who seemed to be channeling Hugh Grant almost, sort of early Hugh Grant as the very, again, very straight-laced Brit. Mm. Who, stuff just happens to him. But when he kind of does lean into the action I thought he was excellent very very funny Uh, so split opinion on Renfield so it's the ads in a minute Anna but first we're going to experience the renowned laugh to lift we're going to go into the laugh to lift together we're dancing So Anna, the production team and I were talking before the show and since it's a bit of a vampire-themed week, we thought we'd theme the laughter lift with vampire jokes that you can really sink your teeth into. I'm on board. I'm on board (laughs) with the vampire puns. I'm so happy. The first one. Why don't vampires use autocorrect? Tell me. Because they love type O's. (gasps) Oh, Daniel does love it. Why does Dracula always read the best-reviewed newspaper? Why? Because someone told him it had good circulation. <laughs> this is genuine love to people. I don't know how or why. I am here for the blood pots. Anyway, <laughs> what have we still got to come, Anna? We have got the new Netflix erotic series, Obsession, starring Richard Armitage. So we'll be back after this, unless you're a vanguardista, in which case we'll be back before you can say, let's go. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And next Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help, I Sexted My Boss live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexedmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. 
That's sexinmyboss.com slash cinema. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with rooftop experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challengers and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Now it's time for our review of Obsession. And before we start, um, not only does Anna have a content warning, but I will say that we scared off the lovely camera operator Charlie when we were talking about this before we started. We got very explicit. We did. We shall not be doing this in, in this review. Not that explicit. <laughs> but I just want to set the scene, okay? I love erotic thrillers. It's one of my favorite genres. I mourn the disappearance of the genre every other day. I've written extensively about it. I am here for this attempted resurrection of erotic thrillers that we've been having every other year. Obsession, the new Netflix series, though, is not it. (laughs) And like you mentioned, Rihanna, I just want to give a little quantum warning for listeners because the show is very explicit and dealing with sex and sexual obsessions. So we're going to be talking about erotic scenes. We're going to be talking about sex. So if that makes you uncomfortable in any way, or it's not appropriate for someone to listen to this who regularly listens to the show, please skip ahead. We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but there's no way to discuss obsession without discussing sex. Shall we hear a clip first? Or do you want to introduce it to our listeners so i shall it's a netflix series four-part series based on the josephine hart novel uh which has been adapted into a film before a 1992 louis mal film called damage which starred jeremy irons juliette binoche and tasha richardson and this series adaptation stars stars richard armitage as a successful surgeon who begins an obsessive illicit affair with a young mysterious woman called anna barton played by charlie murphy so Charlie Murphy, in case you don't know her, has been in Happy Valley. She played Anne in Happy Valley. It was a brilliant role. Let's have a listen to this clip from Obsession and then, God, are we going to dig deep. Hello. I'm Anna. Anna Barton. William Farrell. You're Jay's father. That's right. He's really proud of you. Well, it's been pretty secretive about you. I think he's worried about introducing us. Oh, should he be? So, Anna, I mean, I sort of feel like you've made your feelings pretty clear already, but what did you think of Obsession? I mean, I hated it. (laughs) I am furious at this series. First of all, let me just list all my series of complaints with this in this review. First of all, why is it a series? There are four episodes. Three of them are about 30 minutes long. The third one is about 40 minutes long. Mm -hmm. This is a film. 
it has been forced into a series. There is no dramatic tension in between the episodes. It absolutely does not even need to be a two-plus-hour film, Mm -hmm. let alone a four-part series. The format is all wrong. It's a B-movie. It's a 90-minute B-movie at best. I would have loved it if it was a second-rate erotic thriller that is just there for the sexy scenes Mm -hmm. and for the death, which is what all erotic thrillers are, if you boil them down to it. It's dangerous sexuality. It's dangerous affairs. It's sex and death. It's very on the nose. It's this very primal aspect of humanity, right? Because let's be real, sex is one of the most universal experiences for human beings and one of the most complicated ones, Mm -hmm. you know, to not to get too pretentious. It's not this section yet, but (laughs) there's this famed Oscar Wilde quote, everything is about sex, except sex, sex is about power. And this is exactly the dynamic that the show tries to show us. You know, we meet this very successful surgeon, Richard Armitage plays him, and he meets and becomes instantly enthralled and obsessed with this young woman, uh, Anna Barton, played by Charlie Murphy. However, there is absolutely, and we're not given, any reason for this obsession. There she is, looks at him across a crowded room, doesn't oh, she? Oh, and that's it. And that's it. It's done. <laughs> and that is enough for him to throw his entire life, a beautiful life that he yeah. has built with his wife, who is played by Indira Varma, who is absolutely catastrophically misused in the show. She's so cool and understanding, incredible job, incredible lifestyle, really loving, really into sex still with her husband. It's yeah. not like she... They have a great marriage. Yeah. They have a fulfilling marriage. They're a great match. They're really into each other. They have two beautiful children who are kind of a teenager and a, and a young adult who's also, uh, you know, a junior doctor trying to emulate his dad. And the crux of the matter is that William, that's the the lead character, is having an affair with his son's fiance. Mm-hmm. So Anna is in a relationship with Jay, which is another one of my my reasons to hate this show, because there was absolutely no chemistry between them. There was, what is this relationship? We don't spend any time with mm-hmm. them. There's absolutely no reason for them to be in love with each other. We don't see any of that. And yet, and that is the crux of the taboo. So what is taboo? It's just a whole bunch of people who are deeply uninterested in one another. And the main thing, you know, we talked in One Fine Morning about the sizzling chemistry that exists in a film that is very much not trying to be an erotic drama. This is, this is supposed to all be about a physical obsession so intense that you're willing to throw and explode your entire life because you just cannot help yourself about this other person. You just want to touch them and you just want to have sex with them all day, every day, no matter what it costs. We'd get nothing of this. No. The sex scenes, I want to know what you think, Rihanna, because the sex scenes I found so achingly dull that I was offended on behalf of all sex-having people. What is this five pumps and I'm out (laughs) nonsense? I think they took it from Nymphomaniac, right? You know, like the... (laughs) Two plus two or two plus three, one and two in the front, three in the oh back. Oh my God. I got to say, there is the one, I, I really loved Richard Armitage's performance, actually. I think he really nails the sort of oh, simpering obsession. He's like addicted <laughs> to this Anna character for absolutely unknown reasons because there's nothing to her. And I got to say, he's got, there is a scene where he, um, you know, should we say humps? 
Yeah, he has, let's say, like a, a moment of self-gratification with a pillow because it has her scent. He has more chemistry with that pillow <laughs> that he has with Charlie Murphy throughout the entire show. It's incredibly frustrating because the very it first is. scene that you see them about to engage in some sort of sexual act, you think that it's very much going to be about female pleasure. But no, he completely skips over that area altogether. The entire show does. It's completely mad to me. And also Anna is just not drawn as a real person. She and isn't. so when she she emotes it's kind of surprising because I'm expecting her to be some sort of like I don't know I, I, I want to say basic instinct type character but not even mm. but just sort of amoral which actually she isn't I but she doesn't goes that deep but she doesn't seem to have any agency in no. this they've got the whole idea of um <laughs> of like the the sort of submissive Dom relationship completely wrong. It's like that whoever wrote this does not understand that relationship. No, they and don't. And so it means that we don't understand where they're coming from. I fully don't think the show explains or makes us understand why people are so obsessed with Anna. You know, and I think it's actually really damaging and reductive. Like, why? Because she's young, because she's beautiful, or because she's the perfect sort of movie combination of damaged, but in a hot way. It's like the idea of the cool girl, which is now yeah. feels really passe with what Gone Girl did with that. Yeah, idea. It feels like it feels like it's trying to do something interesting by tr essentially aiming to center more on the female character mm -hmm. or in an erotic thriller, but it absolutely falls into uh, the same traps that lesser movies or you know series have fallen into. And there's ultimately nothing to her, and because there's absolutely no chemistry between Charlie Murphy and Richard Armitage, you don't believe the sex. There is no steaminess to it, and the soundtrack I found so coying mm. and so trying to engineer a sense of danger and threat, there's none. There's absolutely none. So actually, it fails on every single base level. It fails to conjure up any eroticism and it fails to be thrilling. I think that's a completely accurate and utterly damning uh, representation of obsession. If you're going to watch this, it's going to be a hate watch. Don't watch it. Go watch Body Heat. Go watch The Last <laughs> Seduction. Go watch Basic Instinct. Honestly, where was the Paul Verhoeven sleaze? Honestly. <laughs> or where was the actual sexuality? Where's the yeah. sex? Where's the where heat? Where was the pleasure? There was no pleasure. Zero pleasure. It was completely... Un oh, yeah. It lost us. It lost us. So that's Obsession on Netflix. Time for What's On Now. This is where you email us a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. Email yours to correspondence at kermodomayo.com. Remember, you can spell correspondence any way you like. This is Benjamin from Butte Street Filming Art Festival in Luton. I wanted to tell you about our exciting festival taking place April 13th to the 15th. There will be Q&As with filmmakers, networking opportunities, live music and a stunning art gallery and an award show. For more info, please check out our programme at ButteStreetFilmFestival.com. My name is Alex and I just wanted to do a shout out about my first play which I'm producing for the Brighton Fringe Festival this year. It's called Homophobia on the Orient Express, a play about murder, mystery and suppression. It's about two Agatha Christie fanatics who are travelling to Istanbul for very different reasons. It's on the 11th and 12th of May and tickets can be found through the Brighton Fringe Festival website. Thank you very much. So that was Benjamin from the wonderful sounding Butte Street Film and Art Festival and Alex letting us know about his very exciting and fascinating sounding play, Homophobia on the Orient Express. Send us your 20 second audio trailer about your event anywhere in the world to correspondence at kermodeandmayo.com. And that's the end of take one. Production management and general all round stuff was Lily Hambly. Cameras by Charlie Moore. Videos were by Ryan O'Meara. 
Studio engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Guest researcher was Bashak Erton. Flynn Rodham, it's her last week, by the way, was the assistant producer and guest booker. Johnny Socials was on the socials. And Hannah Talbot was the producer and the stand-in redactoress. Anna, what is your film of the week? I mean, we know which one it isn't. (laughs) Oh, it has to be One Fine Morning. It absolutely is. It has to be. And I really encourage people to go and see it in the cinema. I think there's something in that film for almost every audience to take away from it. And I think one of the beauties of it is that it will be something entirely different depending on where you're coming from. And it's wistful in only a way that a French film can be. (laughs) It's gorgeous to look at. Thank you so much for listening. Take two with bonus reviews, a bunch of recommendations and even more stuff about the movies and cinema adjacent television is available on your podcast feed right now. Thank you so much for having us. I hope we did the podcast proud. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Rihanna. Thanks, Rihanna.